Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, where we are centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how are we doing today, sir? Hey, I'm doing well. Very good, very good. Anything cool happened this week? Um, yes, but now I can't remember. All, <laughs> all my days are going by so quickly. I feel it, man. Especially with the holidays coming up, everybody's like getting ready to leave and all that stuff. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty nuts. I'm actually leaving tomorrow morning. Going to hit up Mississippi, see my sisters, and then go to Utah and see my parents. It's going to be going to be a fun time, but it's going to be super busy. I am kind of anxious about it, but I'm also very excited. Uh, when are you going to Texas? Uh, next Monday. Next Monday. How long are you gone for? Just a week? A week, yes. All right, sweet, sweet. Just a week. The Holy Land. The, the Holy Land, yes. Yep. Is Texas considered the Bible Belt or nah? Yeah, I I think it is. It's it's different than the than the deep south, but it is it is a part of its own thing. Derek, we got a lot to talk about, not a lot of time to talk about it yeah. in. So let's say we get into this news. Yep, news. Yay news. Okay. So this first thing I was hoping to talk about was the update to the church handbook. There is like this is pretty much a whole new section on church participation. And um, it would take us a while to read through the whole thing. I was hoping to just go through some highlights and talk about them a little bit. Would you like to uh, begin by just making notes or at least pointing out what stood out to you about this whole new church participation section? Yeah, I think that this new section is in direct response to a lot of questions because so many people have questions who is welcome in church meetings, who is welcome to become a member, and who's welcome in the temple. Because Mm. those are big questions, especially for LGBTQ individuals. Right, right. And this section, this entirely new section, which is in handbook one and two for everyone, so everyone can read this, Mm -hmm. not just the local church leaders. And so it answers these questions, and I think this is a a step forward. I know you don't like the idea of baby steps, but I think this is in some ways better than it was, although there are some um, infelicities to some of the language. Infelicities, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But overall, where it's trying to go is, is good, I think. And it basically says everyone's welcome to church meetings but don't cause a disturbance yep then it says people who are willing to be part of the covenant people covenant keeping people those are eligible for baptism temple you have to be temple worthy with a recommend and then there's this new section on unmarried member participation and blessings Uh which I think is prompted by a combination of LGBT people and people who for whatever reason just don't find someone or they're they're single their whole life even though they try finding mm-hmm. a partner all these uh single straight people mm-hmm. so the question of like what about them gets partially addressed so what what were your reactions to this uh, my overall reaction to this was that I, I really wanted to know where this came from. And you already talked about this a little bit about what this is coming in response to. But as I read through each one of these new rules, I was like, what particular instances have happened frequently enough that you felt like you had to include these in the church handbook of instructions? For example, that first thing you highlighted about everybody is welcome at church, but don't be disruptive. I was like, what happened? And how's that going to make a convert feel? Uh, when I lived in Scranton, Pennsylvania, Um, there was a black sister in the ward. She used to vocally affirm what was being said in prayers or in talks Mm -hmm. and leadership asked her to tone it down because they weren't used to that. I didn't see the harm in it. I knew it was different, but I was like, why is this a problem that we have to address? I I I wonder. I think the problem is all the other people remaining silent. Yes. Thank you, Derek. Thank you, Derek. Because culturally what it does is it keeps you as the listener feeding into what they're saying and paying yeah. attention to it. And you, you resonate with it, not just from them, but from someone else's affirmation, you, it folds in. Yes. Now I can't really authentically do that, but I love being in a worship community where they do that. Yeah. As do I, as do I. And the first time I observed it happening as the affirmations kept coming back and forth, like the orator or whoever was giving the uh, sermon, 
got more and more energy. They got mm-hmm. more into what they were right. saying. And, um, you know, I really appreciated that as an observer of this. But as I was, as I read that rule, I couldn't help but think about that sister and just be like, what if this happens in another ward and somebody, because they simply feel uncomfortable by the way somebody expresses their devotion or the way somebody worships, they tell them to tone it down and in doing so alienate that person. Like, I feel like there's just too much left to the discretion of the bishop. And while ideally it is left that way, I know that there are so many people in leadership who might receive something like this and then take it a mile in the wrong direction. But I think that's where the cultural competence comes in to play because in certain cultural situations... Cultural competence. In certain cultural situations, that's not a distraction. It's part of the authentic community worship. You're right. It's not distracting. I think... what Here's what I think they're talking about. I think they're talking about Remember young Savannah who decided to come out to her ward? Yes, I remember Savannah very well. And uh, and then there was that case where two individuals decided to go up during fast and testimony meeting and use that to call out sexual predators. Pro-testimonies, yes. Yeah. And it, well, let's just back up and talk about this for just a second. You know... Our example is supposed to be Christ. What did he do in the temple? When he, he that was literally a disruption and a distraction and a mess of order, right? Yes. And that yes. sometimes you need to do that. Sometimes you saying. need to turn over some tables yep. and whip some folks. Yep. Sometimes you gotta do that. <laughs> sometimes you gotta do that. I totally agree with you, Derek. I'm not disputing that at all. If there is some kind of disruption or distraction, you gotta you have to address that. You yeah. have to, you know? I'm just worried that people are going to single out things that are not actual disruptions, not actual distractions, things that just simply make them uncomfortable because like they don't people like people being them. themselves. Correct. And then addressing yep. those as distractions and disruptions. What Savannah did, I didn't think deserved that kind of attention right. that it got. I don't think so. Now, if they hadn't have uh, tried to shut her down, that video wouldn't have gotten millions and literally millions of views. Yep. Yep. Silencing people doesn't work. It always backfires, and yep. it always makes you look bad, and yep. it makes you look defensive. And what are you trying to hide? Right. And you. It all falls apart. Yeah. Very quickly if you Indeed. try to keep the truth down. Really, honestly, that is my primary issue with that. I feel like people are going to use this as a license to silence. However, you are right, Derek, in that there are situations where this is merited, and bishops need to be able to use that discretion properly. Right, yeah. If there's someone who's dangerous, like if someone is, uh, you know, sexually harassing people, they should not be welcome there because now right. you can't be neutral in that situation. You right. can't say all people are welcome because if you let the predator be welcome, then other people will not be welcome. Right, exactly. The more vulnerable people will not be welcome. If you say wolves and sheep are welcome, only the wolves will come. Right. Yeah, so we got we to gotta take care of that as well. So that was that was that one. Um, let me see what else stood out here. Um, Let's read out that one sentence that says this. Uh, uh, the, the, all these sort of avoiding disruption and distractions. It says it also precludes making political statements or speaking of sexual orientation or other personal characteristics in a way that detracts from meetings focused on the Savior. Okay. should probably say that in a way part did not actually exist prior to, what, this morning, last night? Probably last night. Okay, probably last night. Um, so that is, that is an improvement on it. I will say that. However, I do have a similar issue with this as I did with the previous one. Right. It I could be like used by... Correct. Yeah. Ten months ago, I gave a talk on racism for Black History Month in uh, in my building. You were there. I you, was there. Do you remember what I was wearing? You were wearing a Black Lives Matter shirt. Right. I was wearing a Black Lives Matter shirt. It was relevant. It is statement it is a it is a statement sweater, but I felt like it was relevant and I felt like it did make my point and I felt like it was in the right spirit. Mm-hmm. However, if I did that in another ward, would that have been an issue? I don't know. I've been wearing my rainbow tie for about, I wore my rainbow tie for about three and a half years. Would that have been an issue in some other wards? I am afraid that some people who want to express themselves in that way or simply let folks know that they are welcome by what they wear or by how they groom themselves, I feel like those folks may get singled out. And I think 
that people using their unrighteous dominion could use this against our trans siblings who yeah. are showing up to church presenting as their authentic selves, the people that they know themselves to be, the gender that they know themselves to be. Right. That could get seen as a distraction, which what's really a distraction is um, the cisgender supremacy that is causing uh-huh. the problem. That's causing the problem. Mm-hmm. You know, the uh, the trans person who's there isn't the problem. Right. And one more thing. Does this mean that uh, we're not going to hear any more talks in general conference about gay stuff? You know what I'm saying? Like, is Oaks going to... St- basically just stop speaking in general conference now <laughs> well, you know what i'm saying but you know here's the way i read this when it says that we should not speak of sexual orientation in a way that detracts that means that we can speak about sexual orientation in a way that doesn't detract from the savior so now if people say well why are you doing this i'm like look we can speak as long as it's focused on the savior and i think i always do that you always do that derek I I've never do heard that. you do it in a church setting where it's not relevant or it yeah. detracts from the spirit or from the savior in any way. Yeah. It's always it's always so relevant. So now I'm going to take this as license to to be even more gay. Very good. More gayness in the name of Christ. Yes. Yeah. So um anyway, all I this that was my primary critique of this whole section was basically that you know it was a bit vague for my like liking. And I, I suppose the church can't win here because on the one hand, they felt a need to put this in here. But on the other mm-hmm. hand, uh, there are going to be people like me who simply worry that there is too much license to, you know, take this in the wrong way. I, I want to give credit to the church for making an effort to address this stuff. But uh, I am interested to see where the first uh, speed bumps are. Yeah. Another thing is in who can become a church member where that becomes relevant is that what used to be the exclusion policy against children of um, same-gender couples. Now that uh-huh. is completely gone. And in its place says that any minor child, eight or older, may be baptized with the permission of the parents or guardians. And as long as they understand, they, meaning the parents or guardians, understand that the child will be taught this particular doctrine and the child will be making and keeping covenants. That's cool. So that what this actually does is it also addresses that whole polygamous child thing, the children of polygamous families. That now policy is now gone too. Right. So both of these policies are gone and replaced by, yes, eight-year-olds can get baptized, but the parents need to understand what they will be taught and what covenants they will be making. I'm like, right. okay, fine which I think is so much better than the what it was. Indeed. I, I definitely want to applaud that and uh, point that out. Anything else in this? Uh, yeah, let's talk about this unmarried member participation and blessing section, which I think I already mentioned. You did, briefly. Yeah. And uh, the last sentence says... Faithful members whose circumstances, because everyone asks, well, what if you don't, what if you don't mar- marry someone, or what if you don't find someone, or what if you get divorced, or what if you, like, well, all these what ifs. Uh huh. I think these what ifs come from a centering of of the heteronuclear family, right? It's only these only become marginalized because you center this one ideal. Okay. Like if that weren't the center, if you just centered all these other things, then you wouldn't even have to ask this question. But they ask this question like, what's going to happen to these people? And it says, faithful members whose circumstances do not allow them to receive the blessings of eternal marriage and parenthood in this life will receive all promised blessings in the eternities provided they keep the covenants they have made with God. See Mosiah 2.41. And... I think that's really helpful for those people who have their, you know, parents on their back saying, you got to get married or I'll never see you again. And this is something they can point to say, hey, look, I'm not required to do stuff I can't do. It is not Mm -hmm. requisite that anyone should run faster than they have the strength as Mm -hmm. Mosiah, uh, where is it, 247, I think, wherever it is. Wherever it is. Um, Mosiah 2 doesn't have a 47, no, I don't think. No, it, it's Mosiah 427. That's what that it is. Mosiah right. 427. Yeah. I'm like, or people worried about, you know, what if they're, what if 
there's a couple that's unable to have children in this life. Right. You know, all of these things that culturally, not doctrinally, but culturally, people are made to feel inferior about. There's there's a place. Now, I don't like it's not it's not the perfect solution to say, well, everything will just get fixed in the next life because there's a lot of fixing that has to be done in this life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's that's a step better than just uh, just leaving there with no direction and people thinking that, oh, I ha- I'm gay, but I have to marry a woman or I'll never see my parents again. Right, right. W- which is really heterosexuality uh, at as a hostage. You know, you're... You're holding someone hostage until you conform to a heterosexual ideal. I'm like, that's not okay. Yeah, yeah. But what's really interesting is this language here that says, um, that it says that all members should strive for the ideal of living in an eternal family. It's then it says this means preparing to be sealed as a worthy husband or wife. And to become a loving father or mother. What's interesting, it doesn't say that that has to be a heterosexual. It just says that that. I have to prepare to be a husband. I'm like, okay. Yeah, yeah. I can prepare to be a husband. It doesn't say that I have to prepare to marry a woman. It just says I have to prepare to be a husband. I'm like, okay. well, well, That's doable. That's doable, right? I can prepare to be a husband. I can prepare to be a husband, right? Yeah. And so I think uh, now this leaves out our gender non-binary friends. By the ha- uh, by, the dual genders here, but what they're trying to do is is address problems that have bubbled up. That's literally what they said, and I think in the introduction to this sentence, this whole section that's been created. Mm. Now, here's something that I want to back up because I sent you a document version of this, and here's something very interesting that I discovered. I have bolded some parts of this and yeah. left others unbolded and the parts that i bolded and i'll probably post this document on our facebook page okay what's very interesting is there is what i call a stratification in this document there are two different layers of the textual tradition there's one layer that is either quoting the scripture or directly deriving its information from the scripture that they're sub- they just quoted okay. or are about to quote stuff that's closely connected intimately to a quoted scripture and then there's other stuff that has no scripture quoted and it doesn't claim any authority for that statement and these are very very different in character what i've noticed is that the when this document sticks closely to the scriptures it is very beautiful and very just and very expansive and when it has the problematic language that's when it shifts away from the scriptures and Mm. doesn't claim any authority. Mm. And I think that's very important to notice because people forget that part of my training is to be a scholar of texts. Notice I said texts, not something else. So um, here's where I'm going with this. Okay. That when I look at this text, I can see sort of... Like I said, these layers of the tradition is stratified. The stuff that's close, that's quoting the scriptures or directly appealing to the scriptures is great and brilliant and powerful. The stuff that's not, it, and here's the other thing. They've tipped their hand. Whoever wrote this document has tipped their hand showing that all these other things that they're claiming, like, um, let's see some of these uh, sort of problematic things about uh, you know, behavior in meetings or um, that, the you know, the ideal family or all these other things that can be used against people, all of those things they are admitting that they don't have a scriptural justification for because they would have put it in there. Right. Right. Looking at the literary style of the other parts, of course they're, they feel free to quote the scripture whenever it supports their point. So the fact that they don't do so in this case proves that they don't have a scripture supporting their heteronormative ideals or their behavior ideals in the right. in the meeting or whatever it is. Any the, kind the of problem. standards of respectability. So what this does is it leaves us free to say that there's like two different l- levels of authority to this document. Mm-hmm. There's the authority... 
that's binding on us when it quotes our canonical scriptures, and then there's some employee somewhere that just drafted this. Let's call him Bob, right? Because we know it was a he, right? <laughs> yeah. You've got the word of God, and you've got the word of Bob, mm -hmm. right? You've got both of these layers going on, sort of stitched together in a mosaic fashion in this text, and I'm like, that needs to be pointed out because all the problematic parts, that comes from Bob. Who knows who that is? Right now, obviously, this must have been approved by some, uh, some. Maybe it was. I don't know if it was approved by the full quorum of the twelve or the first president or who approved it. Right. I don't even think they have a good approval process for this because they've let stuff slip through. Right. Such as that original exclusion policy, but they've also um, part of the other process where they've tipped their hand is making this change because it used to say that you cannot speak of your sexual orientation or other personality or other personal characteristics that detract. Now it says you can't speak of those in a way that detracts uh -huh. from meetings around the Savior, which proves that they're just kind of making this up as they go along. There isn't some rigorous, field-tested, thoroughly vetted process to writing this. Someone right. threw it together, went through a committee, which also explains why it, you've got this stratification. A stratification like that comes very easily when you have a committee where you have one voice putting one part of it and another voice putting another part of it. And why it can appear to contradict itself because I love how expansive it is when it says everyone's welcome in our meetings. That comes from the scriptures. Well, sometimes the bishop's got to get mean. That comes from Bob. Mm -hmm. I like it a lot because, um, you know, initially I was uh, looking for why we bolded these why we bolded uh, uh, these particular paragraphs or sentences. And I really like that there's a distinction being made between that which is uh you know, obviously doctrinal and that which has root in scripture and that which mm -hmm. does mm -hmm. not. You said it yourself, actually, that the biggest distinction here is that some of those things, everything in this document that is problematic doesn't have root in the scriptures. Exactly. And we can, uh, we can really take a lot of comfort in that and also take a couple of lessons from that. Mm -hmm. A lot of the things that we have that are controversial or um, otherwise problematic in the church right now are things that don't really have root in doctrine. That is par for course. So that can really give a lot of people comfort in terms of how to feel about the stuff that they're conflicted with, as well as, you know, certain policies in general. So I'm glad you uh, brought that up. It's a, it's a brilliant analysis and it's a necessary one. So, you know, thank you for bringing that up and for having the being in a position to be able to see that. Um, let's see. I think I may have one more thing in this particular Oh, never mind, because this was about something prior to the in a way change. So I can just leave this out. Well, I do want to say that no matter where you are, you could be in a place where your bishop interprets this the wrong way. Yep. Yep. And the solution there is the allies have got to speak up. Yeah. Yeah. Because when the LGBT folks feel that, that they can't talk about their orientation, you know who's got to make a big deal out of it? <laughs> the people who have the social capital to burn through, the people mm -hmm. who have the privilege and the standing in the community that they can say stuff and it that I couldn't say, right? They can mm -hmm. get away with it saying it, and I can't because for me it will be attributed to my orientation or oh, I'll be seen as the troublemaker or I'll be whatever. But straight people who have nothing to lose because they're not seen as uh, who it's about, they can say, look, we're not treating are our siblings right we're not mm. and uh and they can say that yeah they can they can in fact uh th th this is where i feel like change is going to be happening it's when it's when the dispossession of people on the margins in this case uh members of the lgbtq community it's when their humanity becomes as important as you know our humanity that's when that's when we're going to be able to rest. Mm -hmm. That is when things are going to start reaching equilibrium, and we can't rest until that happens. That's when things are going to change, is when the rest of us straight folk care as much about y'all's humanity as we do about our own or other straight yeah. people's, for that matter. Um, that was a thought that occurred to me as I thought about this quote. I saw Dr. LaShawn Williams actually posted uh, this in her commentary about our next news story. She quoted... Um, 
uh, what's her name? She had a brilliant she did. post on this. She really did. And uh, she quoted Ella Baker, and I'm just going to read the quote real quick. It reads, until the killing of black men, black mothers, sons becomes as important to the rest of the country as the killing of white mother's son, we who believe in freedom cannot rest until this happens. She said this in reference to our next story, which is um, a story about the the killing of uh, Jeremy Sorensen. Mm -hmm. We talked about this, I believe, over the summer when it happened about six months ago. And for those of you who don't remember, this is the story of um, an unarmed disabled black man who was killed by a passerby, by a neighbor, by somebody who lived in his apartment complex for allegedly assaulting a woman and then charging at him afterward. We just got word on Monday night, so uh, two nights ago, that charges would not be charges would not be filed against his killer, and you know that that hits hard for several reasons. Um, I'm not entirely sure where to where where to start, but uh, one thing that made matters worse was when KUT KUTV reported on this story initially. And they tried to highlight his vast criminal history. I don't know if you remember this, but the vast criminal history actually included a bunch of dismissed charges and a littering offense. Mm-hmm. That's what his vast criminal history consisted of. Um, now, obviously this hurts because this is another black man, yet another black man, dead under very dubious circumstances. Um, he was unarmed and disabled. The story changed multiple times over the four-day period by the time they actually got the story straight. Um, the only witness who allegedly was there for the entire ordeal, none of her statements were included in the uh, police report summary. Uh, the victim of the attack, she, she didn't have any injuries consistent with the narrative, like not even so much as a busted lip. And she actually refused treatment when she was taken to the hospital. And, and the, the Provo police actually introduced, introduced language in the summary report of witness statements that, none of the witnesses used, which is something I've never seen before. And they concluded in their notes, again, something I've never seen before. They concluded in their notes that the prosecutor should not press charges or should not go after the uh, killer of Jeremy. Hmm. Again, something I've never seen before. Um, finally, and this is, this is what really got me about this story. The day before this news broke, I was listening to Jeremy's brother in sacrament meeting this past Sunday. He gave a talk in church and he, 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 he opened his first words were this past June, my brother was shot and killed under dubious circumstances. That's how he opened his talk. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I watched him for the duration of his talk, just tear up over how much he missed Jeremy and how much, uh, he was hurt by the whole thing how much he was hurt by the circumstances uh, surrounding the whole thing. And he actually quoted Longfellow's words in that same building that's right across from the house where he wrote these words. Uh, the, 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 uh, the, then pealed the bells on Christmas day more, more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail with peace on earth. Goodwill to men to receive the news that your brother's killer won't be held accountable the day after you express your belief in those words just seems like a really cruel joke. Yeah. And um just I, my heart really went out to that dude like there there's just so much wrong with how this case was handled and you know I really want his family to find peace. I really, you know, wanted his brother to find find peace. Just he was all I was thinking about when I got that news was his talk mm-hmm. and then just getting this news. It it really hurt, and um, yeah, man, just you, you can't. Yeah, it's just one more thing that we we can't do. Like, how how are you going to? Th- this doesn't happen to this doesn't happen to non-black folks. Like, this is the second incident in Utah where a neighbor a neighbor shot somebody because you know, like. Back in, Oct- back in October, a man was returning a garden tool, got shot because a neighbor thought he was stealing. And in this particular case, a narrative that we still cannot be 100% sure of justified the killing of this disabled black man, again, under dubious circumstances, and this guy's not mm. even going to trial. The whole thing is a mess. And, um, you know, I, I, just, I just feel for this family, and I feel for every 
other black person in America who is yet again becoming acutely aware or more acutely aware of how little le- of how little their lives matter. And you know that if all the f- facts were the same, but the killer, except that the killer were white and Jeremy, uh, no, that the killer were black and Jeremy was white, you know that the police would do something. There you know will the be charges. You know, you know, all you have to do is change that one detail, flip the races around, and the story will look so different. I would take it further. If Jeremy was white, there would be charges. If Jeremy was white, there would be yeah. there would be something going on there. But Jeremy was not white. Jeremy was black. His killer was white, and that that's just the way this went down. No one's shocked by it, but it's just really sad. And that's why the whole the the whole Black Lives Matter, not just the slogan, but and the movement and the organization that actually matters because the point isn't. And that's why all lives matter doesn't work. Because you <laughs> you don't actually n- focus on the fact that of the disproportionate effect on black lives here. Right. And you have to name that. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think we should name it. I've you know, I've said Black Lives Matter from the pulpit before. Mm-hmm. We need to, to name this. Uh, yeah. Those of us who who are accomplices need to. And speaking of naming it from the pulpit, let's go back and talk about these political statements, because that could get people in trouble, too. It could. Yeah. But. Guess what? The Bible is full of political statements. It is a whole political thing. Like, like everything that Jesus did and said has an impact on how people live together, which means it's a political statement. Right. And you who know, he was basically made everything he did a political statement. And that's why he was killed. He was yeah. cu- killed for a political reason. Right. Um, by the Roman government as a someone who was a threat to the Roman law and order. Mm-hmm. And, and just... Yeah, everything and the basic Christian confession of Jesus is Lord is a political statement in context, because if you say Jesus is Lord in the first century, that means Caesar is not right. If you say Jesus is the the ultimate Lord of your life and your your allegiance is completely owed to him, that is a political statement, meaning that no other authority has that ultimate claim on you. Everything we have in the New Testament is directly or indirectly connected to something political. Yeah, very much. And that's the nature of the gospel is to break into this world and cause some trouble. Yep. So that's that uh, that needs to be named when we when we go back to that uh, statement, uh, the, the handbook rules. Big time. Sending not peace, but a sword. A whole sword. All right. There's nothing else on that story. Uh, let's move to this final one, uh, this other big story that erupt that came out in the last 24 hours. Uh, this whole thing about uh, the 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 church whistleblower thing. Oh I, yeah. I, I'll, I'll just read basically what this story is a su- what what the summary of the story is. There is a whistleblower complaint to the IRS, and it accuses the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints of building a $100 billion investment portfolio using donations intended for charitable purposes, potentially in violation of federal tax laws. And this is according to a story published on Monday on the Washington Post. Basically, the whistleblower says the church has a lot of money and hasn't used any of it for charity over the last two decades. So, yeah. Any initial thoughts about it? I got a few, but... You want to go first? Yeah, I, I think this story is a mess. And it I, is a whole mess. It's a mess. It is a whole and mess. I mean, I think there's ways that the church could have gotten ahead of this mess. Certainly. By by being more forthcoming and more detailed about what's going on. And I would so love more. Look, I would love more transparency yeah. from the church in general. Mm-hmm. I would love it. And I think that would help us get a handle on like how much humanitarian work we're doing. We don't, yeah. we don't know that. So. That, that's a big point of what I wanted to acknowledge, actually. There's a lot about this whole thing we don't know. And this is why I've, generally speaking, decided to withhold judgment about this whole thing is because there is a lot of information we, we, we don't have. My own, my own research thus far has shown a lot of inconsistency with you know the numbers that were cited in the report that we have so far mm-hmm. and uh, what I was able to you know, find online by Googling certain experts that have ties to research on the church's wealth. Um, but not, not only that, we just can't verify 
anything that is in going on in this story. Like the report that was submitted is confidential and the church doesn't give any specifics with regard to how they spend their money or how much money they got. So there's just a lot in this story. The primary things that would make this story outrageable are not verifiable at all. So there's <laughs> there. I, I just don't feel like we really have a, a, a right to be outraged just yet until we get that particular information. So I, I don't know, man, just Washington posts kind of hit or miss for me, man. Sometimes they, sometimes they got some good reporting. Sometimes they don't. And I just don't feel like they did a very good job of reporting this particular time around this, this read very much like a, like a, but it read very much like a hit piece because there's just nothing here that I can verify and rightly be angry about. Yeah, and my I'm not an expert on this, but my here's my assumption. Okay. Okay. You know how other churches have like theologians and scholars and whatever? Yeah. Our church has businessmen and lawyers and <laughs> businessmen and lawyers yeah. and accountants, okay? I hate to, to say that, but yeah, that's what we got. That's significant, though, because if there's any church that's going to know exactly what the law is, uh huh, it's us. Right. Right. You really think you're going to catch the church slipping? <laughs> like, like, do you really think you're going right, to catch the church, right. slip, church slipping? Now, of course, there could, you know, someone could have made a mistake somewhere. Right. Mm-hmm. But I don't think there's an intentional major scandal here that the church is trying to whatever. And I don't I don't know. Now, there is there is something to be talked about if the church does have a hundred billion dollars and what they're doing or not doing with it. That's something to talk about, but yes. But even then, if what this report is alleging is true, nothing's going to happen to the church because this is all Ensign peak. This is all Ensign peak. This is all a separate arm that handles the church's money. The church isn't going to be able to be held at blame for any of what it's being accused of because the church wasn't actually handling that Ensign peak was handling that, not the church. Yeah, and so uh, that and and the other thing is for churches, the whole nonprofit thing and the whole tax exempt is is on a completely different justification than other nonprofits. Like yeah. other nonprofits actually have to to prove that they don't make a profit. Uh-huh. Churches don't have to do that. They can right. actually make a profit and still be tax exempt. Churches also don't have to. Um, you know, they don't have to disclose these things. They don't have to. There's just a lot of things that uh, they also don't have to prove that they're engaged in any, in any humanitarian effort where other others do. And so there's I'm not a, a scholar on this, but at, the, at least I know that there's a lot of assumptions here that people are, are working with. Yep. And there ne- we need we need to have more. And I would love to have more clarity from the church. I don't need to know where you know where every dollar goes because I don't need to know people's paychecks and whatever. Right, right. But I think it would be good to say this is what our revenue was and this is what our expenses were and this is what we you know in just very broad strokes so that some random idiot online doesn't scoop some weird thing out of context and surprise everyone because here's what hurts is betrayal. The facts. Yeah. If. If if they and this this has to do with things of church history nature too. Uh-huh. If they would be and they're tr- trying to do this as best as they can to be more um, upfront and forthcoming with these things, yeah. people will understand. But if you try to hide it and then it comes out some other back avenue, then people, people will, will be feel, really disturbed. They'll feel betrayed. And uh, and that's why I, I, as a gay person, love this idea of coming out as a model for the church. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, suppose you've got some weird bumps in your story. Just be out about it. And pe- the people who love you will love you anyway. And the people who don't, won't. But you're going to cause more suffering and damage by trying to stay in the closet and try to, to escape vulnerability when actually vulnerability is what Christ modeled. Right. Okay. That, that's all I wanted to say about that whole thing. We'll we'll wait. Like obviously, it's only been a day since that story broke. We'll see what happens in uh, in the coming days or weeks. I don't know how long it's going to take to investigate this whole thing, but yeah, we can say we talked about it because yeah. it was the big story this week. All right. Uh, do you got any other news? Because I got nothing nope, else. Nope, that's it. Sweet, because <laughs> uh, we got like twenty minutes left, and we still got to do "Come Follow Me." So let's go ahead and move into the Come Follow Me. Before we do that, just want to remind you guys that uh, 
Beyond the Block is a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, and arts and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Okay, come follow me, Book of Revelations, chapter, Revelation, sorry, I want to always want to put that S on there. Book of Revelation, chapter 12 through 22. Okay, how do we want to, where do we want to start here? Uh, any context or historical, uh, anything you want to put on this before we begin the discussion of this? Yeah, well, I did a lot of the context last week. You did. But I would just want, maybe people didn't hear that or forgot. So I just want to remind people of a few things. One is, I don't even know if I said this, but the word revelation, apocalypsis in Greek, means an uncovering. It means to take the cover off of something, to expose something that's been hidden. It's really an uncloseting, actually. <laughs> we definitely did yeah. not talk about this last week. Um, so that's really what's going on here. You have something that was revealed through an angel to, to John, showing him like you know, what in the first chapter says is what will shortly take place, and we have to really interpret that word shortly. Uh-huh. Another thing we, I don't know if I talked about this, is one of the, mo- we talked a little bit about how there's violence in this text. Yep. But there's also the image of the slain lamb who was raised mm-hmm. as as a, as a as the victor, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got this victim actually coming out on top. Yeah. And I think that's important to counterbalance some of the violence that even gets put into God's acts, this such as all the plagues and things. Just so violent. Um, and I also wanted to say that we should, you know, there's there's a lot of people that are going to do all this end time. Do you remember the Left Behind series? Dude, I thought about that so much as I read Revelation. <laughs> yeah, like, okay. The Mark, Nikolai, the Antichrist, yeah. all of it, man. Kirk so, Cameron. <laughs> Have you, did you see <laughs> the movie? I saw the movie. Oh, my gosh. It was so awful. <laughs> but, yeah, the, uh, let me tell you about this just real quick. Okay. <laughs> I used to hate, like, um. Me and my cousin were like best friends growing up. I really looked up to the guy. Um, really cool dude. I I stayed with him and his uh, and his mother one summer, and I had to read two hours for every one hour of video game time I got. And uh, they didn't have a lot. The books they had most frequently in that house, all the books were the Left Behind series. <laughs> they had all the Left Behind books. I didn't know what all it was about, but like my my cousin and my aunt were really into those books. And I wanted to, you know, be part of their conversations that they had about the book too. So I started mm-hmm. reading it, but I couldn't, I couldn't well, get into it all that much. For those that didn't go through that generation, that's like <laughs> this book series was like Harry Potter for dispensationalist Christians. This was like one of those few, like if you couldn't, like if you were raised in a Christian house growing up, you probably weren't allowed to read any of the Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter books. So Left Behind is what you read. That is how you got your that is how you got your drama. Like in some houses you couldn't watch regular TV. You watched Veggie Tales. Like oh, I love Veggie Tales. You love Veggie Tales. Yeah, you grew up on Veggie Tales. And in some houses if you couldn't like if your parents were so strict they didn't allow anything that was like sorcery or fantasy like in your house, you read the Left Behind series. Like that was your dramatic dramatic coming of age story series if you if you got one it was left behind yeah and so a lot of people try to piece these like the authors of left behind a lot of people try to piece these together into this elaborate timeline so that we know like how to plan our life like no we don't want we don't need to do that yeah um there's lessons we can learn but trying to interpret every detail and and make it all those schemes fall apart can't do it what you um what is is very clear is that yes, Revelation is a strange book, but not as strange as some of its interpreters. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Um, so let's get into. I just can go through really quickly a few things. If I may, I do oh, have yeah. something that's related to that. Um, I, I just wanted to highlight something that is written in Revelation uh, fifteen and something in Revelation seventeen because what you just said. You know, talking about all the violence in the book, but ultimately that uh, the slain lamb will rise and become the victor. Mm -hmm. That seems to be the overall message of the book of Revelation, that, yes, there's going to be a lot of violence and pestilence and all this other really rough and graphic uh, hardship. But ultimately, the message of the book of Revelation seems to be that terrible things are going to happen, but Christ is going to win. 
So let me just uh, read 15. I'm going to start with verse 2 through 4 real quick. This is called the uh, Song of Moses, I think. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. And they sang the Song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy, for all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. I'm pretty sure there is a choir number in the black church that has these as lyrics. I'm not sure mm. which one. I'm sure Kirk Franklin has quoted this before one of his songs. I don't know. But... Like, this is the overall message of the book of Revelation. Um, it's going to be awful. It's going to suck, but Christ is going to win in the end. And that seems to be one of the primary takeaways that the Come Follow Me manual, as well as um, you know anybody else who talks about or quotes the book of Revelation in the church, seems to want us to get from it, is that ultimate victory of Christ over mm-hmm. all this awful stuff. Right. That I think that's all I'm going to talk about for now. I may come to Revelation 17 a little bit later. But uh, where did you want to go? Sorry, yeah, sorry to interrupt. I wanted to just do like a quick sample of a few things. So in okay. Revelation chapter 12, I'm going I'm to read these verses. Okay. I'm not going to read that that much. 12? I wanted to read these. Revelation 12, starting with the first verse. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman wearing the sun with the moon beneath her feet, and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant, and she cried out in pain and in labor to give birth you know when I think about this uh, I think one of the primary uh, sort of um, things that this sign is pointing to is Israel Israel longing for Messiah you know expecting waiting to give birth and of course this the child that's born is is uh, the Messiah but another sort of referent we could see here is Heavenly Mother and if so, this would be one of the only descriptions of Heavenly Mother. Because it literally is a woman in heaven, right? A mother in heaven yeah, with the sun, wearing the sun, with the moon beneath her feet, and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. And, and I just think that's really interesting to say, well, where's Heavenly Mother? And here's, here's one option to, to see her, at least figuratively. And then... I want to, and then of course we've got the the fight in heaven between the dragon and uh, dragging a third of the stars, and and we've we've talked about this before very often in the LDS world, so I don't think uh-huh. I need to say much about that. But that's there here in Revelation twelve. In Revelation thirteen, we've got these two beasts, really awful beasts right here. Yeah, sometimes man. called the beast and the and the false prophet. You know what I made? You know a mistake I made over the week. I googled these images of what these beasts might look yeah. like. These things are frightening, dude. Yeah, they are so frightening. Yeah. Anyway, continue. I just wanted to put that in there. <laughs> yeah, thanks for doing that. These are these are pretty scary. And in context, they probably refer to Rome's military power for the first beast, and then the economic power of Rome for the second beast. And like we said last time. Scholarship on Revelation has changed from trying to comfort people who are enduring persecution to sort of warning people who are not yet being persecuted, warning them not to get too cozy up with Rome and right. saying, because why would you have to persuade people how nasty Rome is if they are killing you right now? You don't need to do that. You don't. So here it looks like the author is going out of his way to to really portray the Roman system as corrupt, unjust, and and very, very harmful and very nasty. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot of striking language here. And that's the whole point of, of this economic power of the beast, of like all the people who cooperate with the beast end up getting plagues dumped upon them later. Yep. But that's the uh, sort of the economic power of the beast. Uh, the second beast is... Uh, and that, so th- when it says, let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. Where are we at now? We're at the end of 13. End of 13, okay. Yes, the last verse of 13. Um, For it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So it turns out that if you take Emperor Nero in in Hebrew, 
it uh, and put the number the sign the numbers to each letter it actually does add up to 666 Ooh. yes Nero, Ooh. Nero Caesar Ooh. and so that's probably what the what most commentators think this this must have been referring to I see and this gets back into something else about the historical context is you had this actual um, imperial cult. You have you had emperor worship mm-hmm. as part of a the daily life of the Roman Empire. You looked to the emperor for your literal your salvation, your deliverance, your economic prosperity, your make Rome a great again. I mean, <laughs> that's that's what all these people were looking towards the emperor for, and they literally saw the emperor as a divine figure, a son a son of God. Uh, it's and so whenever you confess. In this context, Jesus is the Son of God. It's actually directly against the Roman imperial cult. Okay, then. And then I wanted to go into um, Revelation. This is out of order, but I wanted to get to Revelation 19. And we talked a little bit about worship last week and how worship to me was one of the very prominent themes in the book of Revelation. And yeah, here's okay. actually what happens. So you said you, 19? Yes, Revelation okay. chapter 19. You've got all this hallelujah language, uh, which is the only chapter in the New Testament where you have the word hallelujah. And uh, then you've got all this praising God and fear of God, and then you've got the wedding of the Lamb has arrived. This is in verse 7. Verse 7. Um, and then the— Oh, I definitely sang this. This yeah. sounds very familiar. <laughs> And the and then the angel says to John, "Write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb." That's in verse nine. And then in verse ten, John worships the angel, and the angel says, "Don't do this. I'm a fellow servant." And uh, the angel says, "Worship God, for the testimony about Jesus is the spirit of prophecy." And this gets quoted a lot. And I want to just talk about what that means in context. What it, what I th- read it to mean. In context, because this the word gar in Greek, uh, the conjunction for, it's an explanatory word. It's, it's explaining why he shouldn't worship Jesus. So whatever meaning you assign to that s- statement at the end, the, the statement that the spirit of Jesus, uh, that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, whatever meaning you assign to that, it needs to explain why you shouldn't worship the angel. And mm-hmm. here's what I take it to mean is that the the point of prophecy, the point of this revelation uh, to John, the whole point of it is to testify and point towards Christ. Yeah, yeah. And so what's happening is you've got this excitement going on. John, John sees all this stuff, and some of that excitement bubbles over because of all of this revelation and this prophetic experience he has. It He gets so excited, and in his in excitement starts worshiping the angel, and the angel says, no, the whole point of this, the whole point of this prophecy, th- this revelation is to point towards Christ. And it all goes back to Christ. Yes. You want to say more about that? No. You ah! say something. Okay. So, like, this is very indicative of how we ought to approach messengers in general. Like, the people who are sent to deliver messages, we should not deify them. It all points to Christ. Like, you've actually brought this up before, uh, Derek, when we've, I don't remember what episode it was on. But we had the conversation about how sometimes we are wont to worship the prophets or deify the prophets. When not in, me. Okay, you are not. <laughs> I am not. But I was at one point, okay. and many people in the church uh, are or were at one point. And I only bring that up to say the whole point is Christ. The whole mm-hmm. point has always been Christ. And the second we forget that or we defer to a leader before we defer to Christ, we get in trouble. It was the Paul versus President Nelson episode. This is where we talked about that. Um, There was a time where Paul had a choice to make, you know, when Peter directly contradicted the words of Christ by trying to separate the Jews from the Gentiles when he was approached by other Jews. Paul deferred to Christ rather than deferring to Paul, even though Paul was a Jew himself or deferring to Peter because Paul was a Jew himself. That is another that is another lesson we can take from this. This is how an angel, this is how any messenger should respond. We should not receive praise. We should not re- receive worship or accept adulation from anybody because this is all about mm-hmm. Christ. Paul did this himself many times. He actually 
uh, at least on two occasions that I can remember, has said something along the lines of, this ain't about me. This is about Christ. I do have this authority. I am an apostle, but my authority is not a reason for you to deify me. Like, this is something that is worth repeating and worth highlighting, that we do not deify or worship our leaders, and uh, more importantly, that we hold the authority of Christ as greater than the authority of the apostles or any leaders because it's all about Christ in the end. And that's why I love how explicit it is that the angel says, I am a fellow servant with you. A fellow servant. Yes. That is what he is. The leaders of our church, they're actually fellow servants. Mm -hmm. Yes. We all have the testimony of Jesus. Yes. We're all fellow servants. Right? Yes, sir. So that's what I'm saying about 19. And let's talk about 17 because here we have okay. – um, this image of the the great sex worker here. The great sex worker, right? Okay. In, in in Greek, it's porne is the is the name. It's usually translated as prostitute. But, oh, okay. But um, there's some misogyny involved in how we portray women uh, in our culture and in the, in the culture of the ancient Near East, and so yeah. we have to name that. And so this is not a flattering picture, right? right. But it is a largely symbolic one, it is, is it not? And it's representing Rome, the city of Rome. Not yeah. so much the whole empire, but the city proper is portrayed as this um, this sex worker here. Okay. Someone who is very corrupt and very um, bloodthirsty and very greedy, which is yeah. not a good... Let's talk about a political statement. This is a political statement. Hello. <laughs> political statement, like calling Speak on out... It calling out the greed of a capital city in the most disgusting terms. Mm -hmm. So greedy that this city is willing to devour the saints and yeah. kill them and martyr them and, and get drunk off of their blood and, and, Ooh. and, uh, you know, having a cup full of disgusting filth and it's just awful. Yeah. And, and drinking. Yeah. But anyway, what I want to bring out is that Rome was actually a goddess. The goddess Roma was personified as a, a woman. And mm -hmm. they, we have coins from the ancient world where she's sitting on the seven hills of Rome. And so here you have the the great sex worker sitting on seven hills. This is very clearly uh, supposed to symbolize Rome. And uh, now what were you going to say about the fall of Babylon here? I was actually first going to... Uh quote verses two through six uh that imagery you've already quoted some of it but you know we see this uh this woman of ill repute clothed in fine jeweled apparel and drunken with blood and you know this symbolism is worth mentioning because it's symbolic of rome but it's also symbolic of anybody who embodies this culture it's basically a wealthy sexually immoral warmongering culture that has a lot of lust for uh worldly possessions and, and and wealth i was trying to in my study see if babylon was trying to talk about anybody in particular but really there's a babylon isn't necessarily any particular country or city it could just be any country or city or nation that embodies this you know this attitude or these principles right, the doctrine of balaam or whatever mm -hmm. we spoke about last week um that, that's really all I wanted to talk about. And we already you already talked about the beast, but I only wanted to uh, quote verses one through seven and talking about some of the characteristics of the beast, which are which are very similar. Uh, goodness, what's what's worth saying? Speaking great things and blasphemies. Um, blaspheming the name of God. Making war with the saints. Power was given to him. Okay, descriptions of the feet and all this other mess. But basically, the descriptions that we have of the beast are symbolic of nations that just have more or less given themselves over to worldly desires, the worst of the worldly desires for, for power, for the sake of power, for the sake of other unholy things. They basically sold their souls for for wealth, for power, for sexual immorality, and for all this other stuff. Um, I mean, at this point, I don't feel like it's worth getting into that too much, except to say that what Babylon is, what the spirit of Babylon is, is basically any group of people or any society that has embraced heathenism 
or hedonism in lieu of uh, in lieu of Christ. And perhaps they even think they're embracing Christ while they're doing that. We've already talked about that a little bit last week with the doctorate, doctrine of uh, of Balaam, but uh, that's the only thing I really wanted to bring up at this point in time. Yeah, and I want to talk about the word Babylon, and uh, because at this point in in the first century, Babylon wasn't uh, the, the empire powerhouse, right? And so uh-huh. it's symbolic. Now, what it symbolizes, Babylon was the original enemy of Israel who destroyed their temple. See. That's where the connection is. And Rome also destroyed their second temple in the first century. And so that's sort of the connection. A conquering power who has destroyed your your entire technology to worship God and all these things. All of that gets wrapped in and Rome gets called Babylon symbolically. Got it. Got it. Okay. That might be a good time to uh, wrap up our study unless you've got anything else that's worth mentioning in the Come Follow Me or in the book of Revelation. Well, I just wanted to briefly, I won't be able to comment on it, but hold out Revelation chapters 21 and 22. They're so beautiful. Oh, darn it. Go I wanted to bring that too. Re- go home and read them. They're beautiful. It's this wonderful vision of peace and justice and harmony. And there's some surprising things such as there's no temple there. There's no sun and moon there. All these things symbolically are gone because they are treated as scaffolding getting to God, mm-hmm. right? And once you're directly in the presence of God, you don't need that scaffolding anymore. Mm-hmm. If and it's okay. Be, yeah. Oh, if it's okay. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> that can be a good lesson for us and yeah. how we navigate the church because the church is just scaffolding. It's going to go away too. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to be left with our pure relationships with one another and with God directly. And I think that's kind of a, where I see the, all the whole uh, you know salvation history and the redemption um and justification of us going through the slain lamb that's where it ends up yeah and what you what were you about to say i only wanted to quote uh for chapter 21 verses four through five because this might be the closest thing yeah. we get to um an actual an actual representation of the atonement being used as an instrument of overcoming injustice, which is something that I think marginalized folks need to hear as often as possible. Not only is the atonement a means of overcoming sin and death, and yeah, there are obviously undertones to that very thing, but what it says here, and I'll just go ahead and read it, God shall wipe away all the tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. What are those former things? We don't have time to really get into that. I'll just summarize that briefly. But verse five, and he that sat upon the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, right, for these words are true and faithful. In the context of what's going on in Revelations, this might be one of the few passages, if not the only one, that I can think of personally that makes a direct reference to the atonement of Jesus Christ as a means of overcoming injustice, overcoming oppression, overcoming all things that are unfair. Like, we don't often view the atonement as a liberation tool, but that's exactly what it is. The atonement is a liberatory tool from sin and death, but this is something we need to regularly look at as a means of overcoming social injustice, injustices and unfairnesses of all kinds. And, uh, you know, I don't often see that. This was the first time it really, I really noticed it, and the first time it really came alive mm-hmm. for me was this notion that the atonement is an instrument of overcoming injustice. Yeah, and it's also very clear in Revelation chapter 7 at the end. You've got ah, the blood yes. of Christ there and wiping away every tear. These are shall they hunger no more. Yes. Neither shall they thirst anymore. Did yeah. you listen to that song yet? I'm going to send no, it to you again. send me all these songs. Yes, you need you need Kirk Franklin in your life, man. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually, I'll probably edit that in to the end of this episode so nice. everybody can be blessed. Yeah. Don't copyright me, Kirk. I'm doing it out of love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's probably all we have time for. That is all we have and time for I today. don't have any... Um, a prayer roll. I did, but you know what? It's probably going to happen again next week because you know what? I had a prayer roll for last week, but I was like, you know what? This same thing is probably going to happen again next week. And sure enough, it did. So I'm going to go over both of these things next week, preferably when we have more time and preferably when I have the energy and the time to go over it. So with that, Derek, can we just uh, go on to the housekeeping items? Yes, housekeeping items. So you can find us on beyondtheblockpodcast.com. Also, make sure you subscribe to us. Like if someone just sent you this and said, listen to this, you should subscribe to us so that you can get all of our episodes and uh, 
we love hearing from you. Send us feedback. Send us whatever you have. And uh, that's about it. Really appreciate your guys' engagement with the page as well. Like, we love hearing from you guys. We love, you know, hearing your guys' thoughts on what we've been sharing on the show and generally what's been happening in this world and what's been happening with this Come Follow Me. Uh, your stories are super encouraging. Keep sharing those with us, as is, you know, as are your testimonies, you know. We know we weren't in this work or we weren't in this mindset all by ourselves, but just knowing that you guys are there and knowing that you guys share these sentiments and that you echo those back to us, like, that is something we really appreciate and we hope you guys keep doing that and we hope you guys have the courage to keep you know sharing not just us with your friends but sharing your testimonies in the way that we share uh, with you guys that, that that's all I got okay bye yes, sir. they shall hunger no more neither shall they thirst anymore preach preacher for God shall wipe away yes sir every tear from their eye yes sir get ready for the revolution